And I went to this prostitute's house and he stops and he gave me my money back and he asked me to leave. I thought it was because I was fat. It had nothing to do with the fact that I hadn't showered in days, I hadn't brushed my teeth in days. I was tweaked out of my mind. None of those things were the reason why he asked me to leave. The reason why he asked me to leave was because I was fat. That's what I told myself. And I went home and I remember being on the floor of my apartment in the fetal position trying to actually rip the fat off my body. That's where alcoholism took me. So Farrell M. got sober on January 6, 2000. My name is Mike S. and this is another episode of Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery. So when I was drinking and drugging, my sense of reality, my sense of what was actually going on in a situation was skewed. It was off. And there's a common line tossed around in many recovery rooms that says, I came for my drinking and I stayed for my thinking. And you'll often see a thinking sign uh, in a room turned upside down to represent this sort of upside down thinking. And I'm still staying for that. You know, I learned through my step work with my sponsor that I always like to paint myself as the victim in almost every situation. You're doing something to me. And today I have the difficult task of seeing, well, what was my part in this situation? What did I do? And that's a humbling and usually disappointing exercise for someone like me. And I'll give you a few examples from my life. So this has happened. If I date someone who has openly cheated on her boyfriends in the past, and then she cheats on me, I still want to be the victim. My sponsor calls this petting a rattlesnake. It's The idea is like, it might be nice, but you can get bit. And your part is you brought the rattlesnake into your house. Another example would be, you know, in my work life. Now I trade stocks for a living. And if I have several down months in a row, which happens, I have the tendency to start blaming all the exteriors, the market, the president, black box trading machines, you know, poor me, poor me, poor me. So what is my part in this? Well, my part is I chose a profession that is notorious for volatility. And that even the greatest investors ever, like Warren Buffett and Carl Icahn, have down months. And so I could go on and on again about this. But in this interview, Farrell and I talk a lot about step work, but specifically navigating a 12-step program when your belief in a higher power is at times waning. First of all, where'd you grow up? I grew up in a city called West Haven in Connecticut. So it's right outside of New Haven. Okay. Um, it's sort of like a lower middle class, like kind of working class town. Not it, what people think of when they think of Connecticut. Right. It was it, a big like metalhead town. Yeah. And big family? Uh, no. I mean, you're, you're standard older boy, younger girl, boy, girl, like family of four, but like a large extended family. Got it. Yeah. And so like what kind of kid were you growing up? I mean, I always joke about this when I qualify, but I was a smart, fat sissy, which, <laughs> you know, just meant that that is not a recipe for success. I mean, at least it wasn't in the 70s, you know. I mean, I think it is different now, right? It's like like the kids on the outside, I think maybe they are they have, you know, whatever. But back then it was, it was pretty isolating. Right. And so my first day of middle school, which is like when everybody kind of grows up a little bit. Right. I wore an Olivia Newton-John concert t-shirt. To the How'd that day. go over? It didn't go over well at all. Right. It was not well received. Did you have a and metal band that it. you pretended to like? Uh, no, I just couldn't fake it. 
<laughs> so I'm gonna probably like. Bounce. I eventually did start, but that's a whole different story. But yeah, as you I did start up, to like. Metal. Yeah, but not because of them. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm probably gonna bounce back and forth throughout yeah. throughout the interview. But kind of, can you paint a picture for me? Like paint the picture of what like one of those last days of drinking and drugging look like. I mean, my last. By the time I got to AA, right at the end of my drinking. Um, there was one of two things happening. Um, I was either near a payday or not near a payday. Or I was either on a payday or not near a payday. If I was on a payday, it meant I started drinking as soon as I got out of work. And then it meant that I immediately, as soon as I could, bought crack cocaine. And then that would set off like a three-day binge, maybe four or more, uh, until basically, and I would save myself... I usually would figure out a way to save like a hundred or two hundred bucks out of what I made to kind of like then give me enough money to like buy cigarettes, right? And and like some peanut butter or something until like and and alcohol, like cheap alcohol, until like the next ten days when I got paid again. Basically, that's sort of how I lived. So if that was near a payday, that's what happened. If it was the off Friday where it wasn't, it meant that every day um, I was drinking as much cheap beer as I could possibly get sitting on the floor of this like barely furnished apartment that I had in Queens that I was about to be evicted from. How uh, old are you about at this point? 29. Okay. I'm 29. And I am angry at the world. I am angry at myself. I'm angry at my parents. And I have all these like irrational alcoholic resentments, right? So it's not just like, oh, like I should have tried harder. It's like, no, fuck my parents for giving me these crazy genes, you know, like, <laughs> like I'm like blaming, you know, and I, and I, you know, like I, I hated, um, gay people. Like I had so much internalized homophobia and I hated, I was convinced that the only people who could be truly happy were people who were good-looking and rich. Mm. Which might actually be true. But no, I mean, you know what I mean? But it's sort of like that's where I was. You know what I mean? Like if I wasn't rich and I wasn't good-looking, like I, we were all doomed to a life of misery. The difference between me and most people was that I saw the truth and they were deluding themselves. Right. We, we You got it. No one yeah, else got it. I got yeah, it. Yeah, like yeah. I knew how useless this all was, how hopeless it all was. Like I had it figured out. And they were like buying groceries with their kids. Like I would look out the window because I live near a bus stop. And I'm like, they're just such chumps, man. Like, right. They're chumps. They don't get it. You know? And I also had these delusions of grandeur that I was living this life without boundaries, right? Because occasionally when I started smoking crack, like I might like in the first day or so, I might like leave the apartment and go have like some sexual adventures with strangers. Right. But really, most of my using was spent inside my house. But I didn't focus on that. I focused. I mean, sometimes I'd be so tweaked or so twisted in the head that if I needed to go across the street to the gas station to buy a pack of cigarettes, I might have to walk around in a circle for like 20 minutes just to get myself like psyched up enough to be able to leave the house to go get the cigarettes. Right. Like that's how sick I was. Right. But in my mind, I was living a life without boundaries. And so that's what alcoholism does to me, right? Like there's alcohol and then that's like the alcoholism, right? The progressive alcoholism just created this like web of insanity. So I'm going to ask this question out of just kind of like ignorance because um, I tried m almost all the drugs that you can try, but crack never came into my, my, you know, my area. What does it do for you? Like um, what is the appeal? You know, 
there's this like sudden euphoria that you get that I just can't explain. And you don't get that from snorting it. Like it's different than just snorting Coke. It is different than snorting Coke. It is very different because like you get a rush, you know, from snorting Coke, like you snort Coke and then, or I guess people have the same thing now with Adderall. I guess they have the same sort of phenomenon from Adderall. Like if you're drinking, like just to step back, when, when I, when I was doing Coke, right? Like I started snorting Coke and I loved it because I was a drinker. I loved drinking. Alcohol was way before drugs. I loved alcohol and like cocaine largely enabled me to drink more. Yeah. I didn't get sick because I was a puker. I stopped getting sick, you know, which was great. And um, and then you just stay up all night, like chattering. Sure. You know, Making talking big about, plans. Yeah, yeah. Big plans. Like having that ridiculous argument that's unsolvable. Yep. Making new best friends. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Always new, best, new friends. best friends. A lot of new best friends. But crack was something different, right? You know, it simultaneously wants you to like take off all your clothes and then run away from everybody, right? Like it's sort of like, but you largely... Um, you're just, yeah, you, you get a momentary rush of euphoria and that largely sets off a craving for more. Right. Got you it. Know? it. It it didn't work for a long time for me, but you remember, and that's the brutality of the drug, is that you remember when it worked and you remember it vividly. And that stays with you. So you chase that. Right. You know, you chase that for years. So uh, a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in recovery is that uh, to live an alcoholic life means to live a double life. So what does that phrase mean to you? I mean, for me, I mean, I think for for a long time, yeah, I guess that was sort of true, right? Like when my drinking accelerated, I was actually a bartender. I wasn't like a professional. I wasn't working in an office or anything. so I lived a double life in that I lied to even the people, even the dirtbags that I was working at bars and restaurants with, right? I was lying to them about like how much I was drinking and using and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, I still had the veneer of like I went to the gym or whatever, right? Because um, I was like a fat kid. I got super fit like in my 20s and then for a period. And then as my drinking progressed, that <laughs> fell apart. But um, I had like when I was bottoming out, I had this office job. And I mean, I lied to people, I, you know, like, but I, it was getting harder to pretend I was anything else other than a drunk. Right. Like, um, I, no, nobody knew I was smoking crack. Right. Most people I worked with didn't. Cause that's not really something. That's it's a not a social, social taboo. Right. There. Right. It, right. It is a social taboo, you know? So it's not like, oh yeah, I smoked some weed with my friends right. and like went to a show, you know, <laughs> like, oh, I was smoking crack with some strangers in an elevator. <laughs> like it's not, it's not, it's not the same thing. People are like, oh my God, that sounds so edgy. Like they're like, are you okay? Right. You know? But I, I mean, so I sort of, it was getting harder for me to sort of pretend, um, that I, I was anything. I remember actually that job that I had at the end. I was I was I was working as a cold caller for a company that sold pagers. You remember uh, pagers I like beepers? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was literally just like like they gave us like D and B lists like for small to medium sized companies because they had already penetrated like the big firms and they were just looking for like small to medium sized. Co- and so I was calling like gas stations and churches and it was just awful. And so that's why they tolerated a lot of crap was because it was a job that no one really wanted, right? right? So I would disappear for a couple of days and they would kind of tolerate it. But it was it was it was definitely hard to sort of live that double life that sometimes people do. Because people would even ask me sometimes, are, are you doing okay these days? Like, well, that's yeah. what I was going to ask you. At, at any point did 
either a family member or a friend kind of like take you aside and be like, Farrell, like what's going on? Like you don't look good. You're, you're acting weird. Oh, yeah. All the time. Who? Like the last couple of years. Um, coworkers, friends, my family. And is that surprising? Because like when people would do that to me, when someone would take me aside, like I, first of all, I'd be like really embarrassed slash shocked mm-hmm. because I'd be like, you noticed? Like you noticed me <laughs> nodding out of the, yeah. like into my soup? Yeah. Like. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I, I was actually, um, no, I wasn't surprised, but I got pissed off. Right. Like I remember the first thought was. Like pissed like, off, like stay out of my business? Yeah. I mean, the first thought was, well, if it was an email, like work on a multiple occasion, sent me an email saying, hey, you know, if you decide you need help, now is the time Oof. to speak up, you know? And it's like, fuck you. Like that, <laughs> that was my first thought was fuck you when I hit the delete button, yeah. right? Um, when family members or friends would say something to me, when they would say something like, you know, you seem to be drinking a lot, you know, um, I would... I want to immediately say, fuck you. Like, mm-hmm. that was my immediate, you know. What I usually responded with was that sort of, like, whiny, alcoholic thing where I'd be like, you know what? If you had my life and if you knew the troubles that I had, you'd drink as much as I do, yeah. too. Seriously, man. Are you kidding with that? Like, that's where I would go. Yeah. I think the whole phrase of, like, I deserve it. Like, if yeah. you were me, you would, too. Like, right. Even though, like, in the grand scheme of things, I had, I've had i lived such a charmed life, you right. know? like. Oh, no. Right. But, I, you know, like growing up, I thought I had like the worst family ever, <laughs> you know, and then you get sober and you're like, oh, my God, these people are amazing. Yeah, they're amazing. Like my parents were amazing and they did amazing things like, you know, my parents had nothing to do with my alcoholism, you know, other than perhaps like, you know, enabling a little bit like they, you know, like they were good people who always tried to do the best for their kids. You know what I mean? Like, but you don't see that when you're an alcohol, when you're living that alcoholic life, it's every you're resentful against everybody. Yeah. Everybody. Yep. I was resentful against everyone. I hated the world. Mm. You so, know, and I think that's a trick of alcoholism. I think it's a common thing, right? That it's me against the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. yeah. So take me through, like, show what is Max Payne, so to speak. Yeah. You can call it a bottom, Max Payne, mm-hmm. slash, how do you get into a, a recovery room? I mean, I guess maybe if it'd be helpful, like, I'll just kind of talk about my last three days out, right? Yeah. So, like, look, I wasn't always a crackhead, right? Like, I was sort of like, I became a crackhead. Like, I drank for years, happily, just drinking. And I loved drinking. I loved alcohol. I loved bars. I loved, like, Irish bars when I bartended in my mid-90s. And in the mid-90s, when I was in my mid in the mid-90s, I was in my mid-20s in D.C., like, I loved it. Yeah. Like, I loved drinking i loved being in bars I, I just you know and i was like and i had this thing worked out for me where i was like the gay guy working in straight bars and i kind of got off on that yeah. like you know because that was my own like having a hard time except i like i i thought because i was out like i was totally comfortable with who i was but i wasn't really you know and um so i was doing this whole thing right and I, so i always loved drinking i love bars i started doing cocaine that accelerated some problems and i i really ended up back here you know because i I thought if I moved back here and got an office job that I uh, I, 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 I wouldn't do cocaine anymore. When that, you say back here from? From D.C. From so DC. I, I lived it. here, yep. moved to D.C. and then back here. Um, of course, that didn't work, right? Right. Like, like it, you know, and my drug dealer in D.C. in fact told me, he was like, you're going to meet your next dealer in the first bar you go into in New York. Because he, he had been sober, my, my, crack, my oh. coke dealer in D.C. He had been sober. And then he went out and he was a full-time crystal meth addict, uh, prostitute, and drug dealer. 
And I actually thought he had it made because he had all the sex and drugs he wanted and he never left his house. Right. So I, thought he was, I thought he was really smart. Yeah. So, um, but he was like, you know, and anyway, he was wrong. It was like the third bar I went to in New York and I started, you know, and then I was like off to the races. I had a new dealer and I was doing coke. Um, and then eventually at some point I was with some place and people didn't have any coke. They were smoking crack and they're like, oh, you should give it a try. And I'm like, oh, it didn't really work. Uh, and then it did. And that was like two and a half years of hell. Like, mm. and you know, when you're living that crack lifestyle, like it just kind of drags on, right? And it was kind of like I stole from people, people stole from me. I hurt other people physically, other people hurt me physically. You know, I stole people's drugs and helped them look for them. Right. You know, people stole my drugs and helped, helped, helped me look for them, you know? Um, and it's just the same stuff. And the lying, the lying, the covering up the it's exhausting right mm. i don't know if there's a max pain like there were some my last three days out was sort of typical right and i always say this like i started on a sunday i ended on like a wednesday right um you know lying about why i can't be at work again except this time they they i basically knew i was going to get fired um because I, they had told me I couldn't miss any more time. And, um, you know, I, I, I never, and that was the other thing. Like, I never went on a vacation, right? Like, alcoholics don't go on vacation because, like, <laughs> all my time was, like, you know, calling out drunk. And so, money, right. Right. Yeah. All my money and time was, you sure. know, was, was being drunk. So I didn't, I didn't know this whole idea of, like, having money to, like, you know, go to Florida or something, right? Like, I was like, what? So, anyway, so I was, like, literally there. I knew that I was going to, and I was about to get evicted. I, I moved into this apartment and then I couldn't pay the rent. Um, because I was using it on drugs and alcohol and I couldn't pay my electric bill because I was using it on drugs and alcohol. I couldn't pay my phone bill. I was using, you know, on drugs and alcohol. And by the way, I, I like would sometimes hook up with other drug addicts via phone sex lines. I don't know if you remember phone sex lines. This was a little bit before me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, You're a young guy. This was a thing. And they had these like live chat things and there were other people like other dudes like in New York who were like smoking crack or getting high so with other So you would drugs. call into this like, sort of yeah, like and you, chat room. You, yeah, and you would basically post like a little recording that you were like getting high or whatever. And then like you would connect with that person individually. And, but like I had so this So this is like bill. pre-grinder. Yes, yes. Got it. Yes, okay. yeah. And and then you would go to the person's house under the guise of having sex and you would just like do drugs. You right. Know? Like you would th- you would t- talk about how you were going to do it and then you would just do drugs, <laughs> right. you know. Um, cause that's really what you wanted. You sure. wanted to be there for the drugs. Yeah. And so that last three days, it was the same. And it, the thing was, I, I really, I just wanted to kill myself at the end of that three days. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't imagine living another day like that. Also, I had no money left. I had no credit left. Um, I knew I was going to get evicted and I couldn't. I didn't see myself quite as like, like I didn't think I was tough enough to be homeless. Yeah. You know? I always and felt I like the thing about a bender and like I was a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday bender kind of guy. And the thing about it is it, like, I feel this, especially about cocaine is like, you're not sure what's worse, like keeping it going or ending it. Right? Well, a couple of things kind of stand out about that last three days. One of them, and I always joke about this, right? Because like one thing to remember was, you know, I'd gotten, I'd been a fat kid. I got kind of like, I got in shape, like in my twenties, mm-hmm. like a, like a, like a good gay guy should. And then, um, that fell apart cause I, I was consuming so much alcohol. I started buying like cheap beer cause I needed volume at this point too. It wasn't just enough to have alcohol. I needed volume. I needed to constantly be drinking something. Right. So I started drinking, I started buying like whatever the, che- I'd lived diagonal across the street from a beer distributorship. And so I would just buy whatever was the possibly cheapest case of beer. Um, 
And uh, my last case was actually Bud Ice Light, I believe, because mm. uh, it was on sale. It was on a post-millennium <laughs> sale or something. I don't know. So I had this beer. That might have been the last time they ever right. sold it. So I wasn't just a crackhead. Like, I was a fat crackhead. <laughs> right, right. Like, I didn't even get skinny like the crackheads get. Like, you know, they get the ripped abs, you know? Like, they get like that was the one good side benefit of being a crackhead. Like, I couldn't even get that. Like, I was the Charlie Brown, a drug addict. So... <laughs> Like, and I so hated myself and I went to this prostitute's house and we were going to kind of like do our thing or whatever. And um, we start doing our thing and he stops and he gave me my money back Hmm. and he asked me to leave. And I thought it was because I was fat. You know, that's what my, uh, it had nothing to do with the fact that I hadn't showered in days. I hadn't brushed my teeth in days that I was smoking cigarettes, that I was smoking crack, that I was drinking alcohol. Uh, like, you know what I mean? Like, n- I was tweaked out of my mind. None of those things were the reason why he asked me to leave. The reason why he asked me to leave was because I was fat. That's what I told myself. That's the lie that alcoholism told me. And I went home and I remember being on the floor of my apartment in the fetal position trying to actually rip the fat off my body. Like that's where I was. Like that's where alcoholism took me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't, so it was a pain point, but it was also a lie. In the middle of that run, I actually was about to kill myself and I'll never forget this. Um, I had actually, because I couldn't, I knew that all of whatever I was barely holding together was no longer going to be held together. And so I had, Strip my bed. And um, I remember that years earlier, there was a guy named Donald Manis who was a politician in Queens. And he had killed himself by plunging um, scissors into his chest. So I thought, all right, I'll do that. So I was going to plunge. I had a, I had like a, like a steak, like a, like a butcher knife and I was going to lay in bed and I was going to force this butcher knife into my chest. Like I was lining up like where my heart was and I was just going to do it. Because I couldn't, I couldn't take the pain. I couldn't take the pain. This is and after the hooker kick job. Right away, yeah, the right before, right after. And, and then I remembered, like, because it was, like, the end of the year, we got this little extra bonus. And I had, like, a few hundred dollars more in the bank. And no good crackhead kills themselves with a few hundred dollars right. left in the bank. You go, you take that out. You, then, you know what I mean? So yeah, I was yeah, like, yeah. so I actually put the knife down. I went to the ATM. I bought it. I called the dealer. And then I like partied for another day. Partied, in quotes, for another day or two. And by the way, when it ended, it ended not with a bang, but with a whimper, right? How like, so? Like I literally, I kept saying, well, when this is, when this is over, I'm just going to do it. Um, and then I just kind of quietly passed out as I often did in my apartment. I can't remember where I passed out. I passed out somewhere, um, on that Wednesday morning, January 5th, 2000. And And when I go ahead. Yeah. And when I woke up, um, I called one of my friends, uh, who was one of my best friends from high school and I asked for help and I said, I I just don't know what I'm going to do. And he had, was already kind of sick of my shit, you know? And he was like, because he lived in Connecticut and he had a wife and right. stuff like that. And he was like, oh, all right, I'll come down tonight. You know, he was like, fuck. You know, but I mean, he loved me. But you know what I mean? Because he was sick of my shit. Because I had like, I caused a lot of disruption in his home. Like with so his wife. So did, did you go to rehab? So I did. So what happened was, and I, you know, I don't know, man. There's something about, I put out into the universe that I was willing to accept help for the first time. I called someone and affirmatively said, I need help. Can yeah. you help me? 
around the same time as I made that phone call, like my parents knew that my life was careening out of control and they didn't know what to do, right? They had tried to talk to me. I didn't want to listen to them, whatever. My father was on Interstate 91 in Connecticut heading towards Hartford. Around the time I made that call, he said he doesn't know why, but he had this uncontrollable urge to get off the highway and he turned around and he headed south and he just drove to my apartment from just outside Hartford, Connecticut. And he doesn't know why. Wow. Because um, I had been calling out sick for days for a long time. This wasn't anything new. They knew it was getting bad. Um, and I don't know, man. Maybe it's because I put it out into the universe. I don't know. So he showed up at your place. He showed up at my door and I just, I told him everything. There were no secrets. And he called a random, he called information and we got in touch with this rehab and within 24 hours, less than 24 hours, I was on an airplane to Florida. So I, I had an experience not as dramatic as that, mm -hmm. but I mean, I, again, and I was the kind of person that uh, I skidded along the bottom for a few years. I, you know, I asked you the double life question earlier mm -hmm. and like, I like, I had a double life, like to the fullest extent mm -hmm. that you could, you know, like I was one person, I had a triple life. I was mm -hmm. one person with my family. I was one person mm -hmm. at work. And then like, I was like shades drawn in the apartment, like alone, like <laughs> yeah. there was that guy. Right. And I had to like keep everyone, you know, right. away from each other. And but I But you were doing it for a while. But I was doing it for a long time. Yeah. And like all those lies and all that secrecy like really starts to build up. Sure. And I remembered, you know, one day, you know, I'd qu I had quit, quote, quit, because I quit every Sunday for six years. I quit again, and I had yeah. like six days, which was like a lot for me. I flushed a lot of cocaine, by the way. Is yeah. there anything worse than <laughs> flushing cocaine? Because the second that you put it in the toilet, you regret yeah. it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, and I called my sister, and I like, I got like about three words out, and I just like started sobbing, you know? And I, it was just like, it, it's like a mm. just giant wall yeah. that just like crumbles down. Yeah. And I said to her after the conversation, like she was in California, she was like, maybe you should come out here. And I was like, no, no, no. Cause God forbid I miss like any time at work. Right. Um, You're very important. Rough, so important. Um, and I said at the end, I was like, by the way, like don't tell mom and dad. And then I happened to see my parents like three days later at a diner. And they were like, so we spoke to your sister. Like, we know everything that's going on. <laughs> and like, initially you're mad, but like, you're so, you're so happy to. Right. You know, that like, okay, fine. I can like stop this charade. Right. So you go to rehab, 30 days? No, it was only 15. So my insurance started calling uh, after the first week with wanting updates as to how well I was doing. Right. So, um, I, I, I went there. I will say before I went, and I'll never, I, I, I will tell you this. Um, I, when I was on the phone with the rehab guy and he was telling me all about it. Look, this was January, by the way, and it was particularly cold January that year. It was so freezing and we had had snow. There was already ice on the ground, all that kind of stuff, you know. And like, it was Florida. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. And sure. they tell me that they have like volleyball and um, they have nutrition classes. And I'm like, well, I like the sound of that. Lose a little weight, you know. <laughs> um, they have individual therapy, group therapy. And by the way, I called my job and I said, listen, I, I can go to this place. And as soon as I raised my hand and asked for help, then I was like protected, right? So yeah. they said, okay, great. Like you get to keep, basically I got to keep my job because I asked for help. So I went down there. But when on that conversation before I left though, he did say, he's like, oh, and we also have AA or NA meetings that come in every night and I'm like 
It's like, I, you know, listen, this But, like, did you know great. what AA was? I did, and I wanted no part of it because I had long since rejected any idea of How God. did you know what AA was? I had no idea what it was. I, I just, my father had friends that had gone to AA just from general cultural knowledge I knew of it. But I, I, I thought it was a little more Christian than it is, although I think outside of New York it's pretty Christian. But it's, like, mm-hmm. it was pretty Christian. And I was like, it's not really. And I said to the guy, I'm like, that's kind of like the purple robes and the Nikes. So I don't right. really know it's, it's like for me. You know, and so thank you, though. This is terrific. And he was like, well, listen, man. He was like, you know, he's like, I'm an addict like you, man. And he's like, I like smoking the crack, too. And I was like, he's like, he's like, so, you know, you like you like everything else we're talking about here. Right, man. And I was like, yeah, it sounds great. And he was like, so why don't you come on down here? And when you got to go into that meeting, you just don't pay attention. And I was like, mm-hmm. I could do that. Sure. Yeah, I'll I could t- do I'll that. Tune out. Right. I do that standing on my head. <laughs> And uh, and I, I can tell you all about my first AA meeting. Like, I remember the speaker. I remember the speaker's name. I remember. Did you feel like uh, you identified? Like, did it sink yes, in right away? It did. Um, I, I had nothing in common with the speaker. He was in his mid to late 50s. He was a straight dude. He was a Christian. He talked about his first wife, his second wife, his his children. I think he had done, like, a stint in the Navy. He actually owned um, some Chevrolet dealerships in South Florida okay. and, and lost them as the result of his drinking, like, like just like a character out of the big book. And um, I, uh, I had nothing in common with this dude, but I shook my head up and down the entire time he talked because he, he talked about how he felt before he ever took a drink. He talked about what a drink did for him, and he talked about the consequences of long-term drinking. And I've never had to have a drink since that day, since January 6, 2000. So in that first, let's say, 90 days, right? What's mm-hmm. the hardest part about the first 90 days for you? The hardest part was, well, the first 90 days was the hardest part for the first six, uh, 10 months. I wanted to drink whiskey and smoke crack all day, every day for and, 10 months. And what stopped you from doing it? <sighs> there was something really attractive about the people in AA that I was meeting, not in a physical way. But there was something happening there. Um, you know, for starters, these were the first people in a while who actually, like, you know, picked up the phone when I called and actually returned my phone calls. Um, they invited me to things. Yeah. Because that, that didn't happen a lot anymore. <laughs> like, also, I just, I, like, them knowing my name was a big deal for yes. me. Like, I was shocked oh. when someone would say, like, hey, Mike. And I'd be like, yeah, you know yeah. my name. Right. And they remember your day count. Yes. Yes. And they're, or they're close, right? They're like, yeah, you're about 60 days yep. right now, right? And you're like, who the fuck are you? Yeah, like, like sometimes it was people I didn't even know. And, you know, but I was doing it. And I was like that newcomer. You know, I was like the annoyed, like everybody loves the reluctant newcomer, right? Like the dude who sits in the back and is kind of like, kind of scared and kind of angry. Like everybody loves that newcomer. That newcomer was me. Yeah. And that newcomer also like... He doesn't want you to come up to him, right. but he also gets mad when no one comes up well, to him. Well, exactly. My, I was the other kind of newcomer. I was like front row, hand <laughs> raised. Yes, I'll read. You know, <laughs> I was the opposite. And um, but but you know, I know that newcomer well. I've sponsored a lot of them. But you know, it, it's like so. It was like this weird thing that was happening, right? And and I felt like I couldn't say the word God for like a year yeah. but I but I could feel and I would say to my sponsor like there's goodness like I felt something 
And it, and it, I had a hard time. Like, I had a I picked a interim sponsor for like I had him for like the first. He di- he fired me at day fifty. Like he fired me Why? at day fifty. I don't even know. He took me to a restaurant. He told me a story about another sponsee that he fired, and he said, "Gleaned from that what you may." He was kind of crazy. And so the next day, I raised my hand and I talked about what had happened. And um, a guy came up to me after the meeting and he said, "If you want a sponsor, you got one." And he gave me his card. And he became my sponsor for 12 and a half years. And he was the perfect sponsor for me because he had all the same fat kid damage that I had. Mm. And, and he was really, um, he understood me like on a, on a, like the, in a way that no other person has ever understood me. Um, his name was Mitch and he still not was, it is. Um, and he was the perfect sponsor for me for a really, really long time. He's an amazing guy. And, you know, if it wasn't for Mitch, I mean, I don't know. And we broke down the nights. We broke down the days. You know, we just – I bargained for 10 months, you know. Just bargained what, though? Like, okay, just get through get through the day. If you still want to smoke crack, yeah, yeah, the work yeah. day, okay, you can go get high. And then, like, all right, we'll just go to the meeting. And if you go to the meeting, you know what I mean? Like that kind of bar- – and I did that all day for months. Yep, same. And it's hard, man. So – Let's go back to the God thing for a second. So like for the first year, you don't even want to say the word. I didn't either. Sometimes I still don't, To be, if we're being yeah. totally honest. So if someone says to you, hey, you know, a higher power is a, quote, re- requirement of the program, what would you say? It would have been harder for me to accept it. I, I, I don't know if I would have stayed. But what would you say to someone who's asking you now? If if someone oh if someone asked me that yeah no, oh not if, if somebody says, told me that. no oh. if someone says right now hey is a is a higher power a requirement of no, AA no but it's all over the walls it's all over the steps it is it is I would share with them my experience um, well there's God and there's higher power right I got down on my knees in the morning and at night even though I didn't believe in God because my sponsor told me to do it mm-hmm. and I felt that there was a humility in that that I needed. So I did it because I was being told to do it. And by the way, like, you know, when you stop smoking crack, like shit in your life starts getting better pretty quickly, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, yep. So like my life was starting to get better. Like I wasn't drinking, you know, like suddenly you have more money. Like you can actually pay those bills that you're way, way behind on, right? Um, and you have people who will coach you on how to how to pay all that, that, all that down and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So it was happening, but it, it was like I did it. I still God for me is very action based. Like I I don't know what I don't have like an how do you, like the the word like anthropomorphized version of what God is. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel close to God when I'm in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I feel close to God um, when I'm returning my sponsees' phone calls and I'm listening to what they have to say. I feel close to God when I go to my mom and I rake her leaves. I feel close to God when I show up and I'm a good partner to, you know, my partner, Rich. Mm-hmm. I, I I feel close to God when I go into work and I, I'm a good worker for my firm, right? If I'm spending my day not returning phone calls and just like watching porn and eating donuts, like I don't really feel close to God. So that, that was my, <laughs> my follow-up is, and I have my own sort of um, clues, but like when do you know when you're sort of like spiritually, I'll use, it's cliche, but off the beam, so to speak, where you're like, I'm not close to God and I'm not acting you know, sober, so to speak. Um, I know it a lot of times I, I start feeling cranky, yeah. by the way. Um, I get cranky. I get snippy. Yeah. Um, I'm not watching my mouth. You know, 
people talk about how they had like a lot of damage to repair because of the things that they said when they were drinking. I had some, but to be honest, my mouth, my mouth is way more dangerous sober because I'm present and I know what's going to cut through and I, I can find the meanest thing to say sober. Totally. Like when I was drinking, I was kind of like too drunk or hungover. I was like, oh, whatever. Like people would screw me and I'd be like, whatever, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like sober, I get, I, I'm in touch with my anger. Uh, I'm in touch with my emotions. I know when I've been screwed and I get angry. You know what I mean? So my mouth can actually be much more sharp sober. So if I'm not controlling that, you know, maybe if I'm sending that email that I shouldn't send, you know that email. Yeah, we all have that email that you should really send to drafts and you actually send to the person instead. That I, response. Uh, <laughs> I see it for me like, um, you know, listen, a lot of the times I want to say those things that you're talking about, those sort of like nasty things, right? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I just am nice through gritted teeth, right? Like, and that's okay for me, you yep. know? Yep. I, like I'm fine faking it sometimes until like it feels genuine. Mm-hmm. But it's it's been a process for me, and I will say when it comes to God stuff, it has been very up and down for me over the course of my sobriety. Um, you know, for people who have struggled, I I have I have often become very comfortable with the idea that there is no God, mm-hmm. and I'm comfortable with that idea. But I still get on my knees. I still pray in the morning. I still pray at night. I try to have a conversation throughout the course of the day because it provides me some comfort. Yeah, and I I know there's a there's a great um, writer who I've started listening to more. Uh, He's on YouTube. A lot of his stuff is on YouTube. His name is Anthony DeMello. He was a Jesuit priest. He was an Indian Jesuit priest. Okay. And um, he did a lot of of talk about, a lot of work on spirituality. And he talked about, you know, look, God is inherently, God is a mystery, right? God is a mystery. And what is a mystery? A mystery is something that is unknowable by man, right? We, We can't know it. And so I have no idea what's out there. But I know enough to know that I shouldn't make any declarations, yay or nay, whether God exists. Right. And that's why they, I mean, to me, I hear in the big book when they talked about like the door is open a crack. Yes. You know, and so that yay or nay, who am I to say? That's what I see in the big book with that. Right. And the beautiful thing about the big book when it comes to spirituality is it's not the final destination, right? All it is, it's the gateway book. Right. You read that book enough, right? It's the gateway. And then you can go and read, you can, I, I know people who are, who become devout Christians. I've met people who really got back into Judaism, which was their faith of, you know, childhood, who are, who've gone off into like Buddhism or Hinduism where no one in their family did that before, right? Yeah. They've chased things or sometimes they've chased multiple paths. And I love that. I love seekers, right? Like, you know, I read Sermon on the Mount. I'm not a Christian. Sermon on the Mount was a beautiful book, right? You know, Emmett Fox's Sermon yep. on the Mount. It's a great book. I'm, you know, I'm listening to a lot of Anthony DeMello now, and I probably should read Sadhana, which is his book called Sadhana, A Way to God. And it's just great stuff. And it's sort of like, but again, I don't know if any of it works or any of it's real. And I'm never going to argue with a newcomer who tells me that there is no God. Right. Now, you, um, you're one of those guys. So like, and when I say that, I mean like you're one of those guys in the room that like everyone knows you sponsor a lot of guys. You're always like, you reached out your hand to me, like when I first came in and like, when did you become one of those guys? (laughs) Um, you know that, I don't know, but I think, you know, part of it started when I was brand new, right? When I became like that newcomer, right? That hand raised front row. Yes. I want to read how it works. You know what I mean? Like I kind of latched on to this, um, but I got my first sponsee um, when I had a year and a year and a day, a year and three days, something like that. 
And I've been sponsoring people ever since. Yeah. How many guys do you have right now? It's hard to say. How many guys that call you? Well, (laughs) because I have some people that I'm a sponsor in name only. Right. Right. Um, if you took everybody, including the, we're on the sponsor and name only, and I never hear from them, it's probably about 20. Right. But there's over 10 people that I'm actively working with who actively call me at least over 10. Wow. If you were, let's say someone came up to you and they said, what would, uh, if you were going to give one piece of advice to a newcomer or someone that was even just thinking about getting sober, who wasn't sober yet, what would that one piece of advice be? Stay open. Just to stay open. You know, it took me a year to say the word God, you know, but I stayed open. You know, I kept coming. You know, I stayed open. I've gone through protracted periods of my sobriety where the externals in my life have not worked and AA wasn't fixing them. And I just stayed open. You know, I was sharing with you before about Mm -hmm. being eight, nine, 10 years sober. I was this period of a year and a half where economy collapsed my half my income was in commission that dried up so my income was cut in half I had gone to law school I failed four bar exams over a year and a half my student loans had come due I borrowed six figures so now I'm paying out more money and I'm making less money and my partner and I were going through a hard time and it was just like like everything was closing in on me and I just stayed open and I went to there's a meeting here in the city called midnight and I Mm -hmm. went to that every night and um, I sat in the front row and I just kept reading the third step over and over and over again. And 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 keying in when I'm going through a hard time, the the key word I, the that I the word that I key in on it is care. That I turn my will and my life over to the care of God, right? Not to the abuse, not to the mistreatment. I'm turning my will and my life over to the care of God. And if I can remember that I'm being taken care of, you know, it helps me walk through that. Yeah. Because, you know, I've walked through, I'm walking through something now. We talked about, right? Like job stuff. I changed careers a few years ago. I'm like not a kid. So now I'm like older, right? And I'm walking through things and it's, you know, you you get more self-conscious about your age and all this other stuff, right? And I'm just trusting that I'm being taken care of, you know? So, and I'll get you out on this. When you are qualifying in a meeting and every qualification is supposed to be, what was it like? What happened? And and what it's like now? And so... What do you say these days when you say, and here's what it's like now? Um, that's pretty fucking good. <laughs> it's pretty fucking, I mean, it's just great. I, I, I'm just blessed, right? Like I, <clears throat> I've walked through some really, really tough stuff sober. You know, the illness and death of my father, who was like my best friend. Um, the illness and death of a sponsor. Not that one that I had for 12 and a half years, but a, but a man who I knew my whole sobriety and sponsored me subsequent to that. Um, the death of a sponsee from alcoholism. Mm. Um, in fact, I had a sponsor die from alcoholism. Um, and six weeks later, that sponsee died drunk. You know, my sponsor, Bob Fisher, uh, who was a great man, and he died, he died sober. He was 59 years old. He died from cancer. And he died surrounded by the love and support of this fellowship. He was in AA. You know, he was 24, 25 years sober. He was in AA. He was not on the outskirts. And when he got sick, people showed up for him. People told him. They came to him and they said, listen, we've worked out a schedule. So he was getting ready to start hospice. And I saw him the night before he started like heavy-duty hospice care. And he, he was right. going to be on morphine 24-7. And they said, we have a schedule worked out. So no matter when you go, you're not going to go alone. You know, someone's always going to be here. Yeah. Because that's what AA does. Um, And so 
he died surrounded by that love. And he felt it the night before he, you know, I, I saw him and, and he, he, you could see it. He was, he was so overcome with it. And I, cause I said to him, I said, I guess this is the ultimate third step exercise, right? And he said, yeah, he said, you know, it is. He said, but to me, this is about 10, 11 and 12. He said, because before I got sober, you know, I was useless and I just took from people. And he said, 10, 11 and 12 enabled me to be of service to other people. And now when I've needed it most, it's come back to me. Mm. And six weeks later, I had a sponsee <clears throat> who was, I hadn't talked to him much lately because he was really out on a serious run. He was 38 years old and he was his parents' only child and he died alone in his apartment. And those two deaths so close to each other, you know, really synthesized for me what this is about on a daily basis. You know, we're all going to die, right? But what kind of death am I going to have? Am I going to have a death like Bob Fisher had, right? Am I going to, am I going to die surrounded by love or am I going to take my will back right and go drink and 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 die alone um we didn't talk about it much but I will say that for me the third step is the most important step out of any of the steps I work I work why do you say that I work the third step every day because for me if I'm not because I take my will back all the time sure same but if I'm not working the third step I'm going to act out at work. I'm, 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 I'm going to send that email because I'm going to be coming from a place of fear. So if I feel threatened at work, I'm going to respond irrationally, right? If, if, if I'm not working the third step. And how do you work the third step? I mean, for me, it's a mindfulness practice, right? So I, I get down on my knees in the morning and I say the prayer. Um, I get down on my knees at night. But then also throughout the course of the day, I'm constantly breathing. I try, I'll pause, I try to pause and to take in a breath and be like, your will, not yeah. mine. Your will, not mine. I have to, rem- for me, I got to remind myself throughout the course of the day because even midday, I can start getting edgy, you know. And for and for someone who doesn't understand what that means, your will, not mine, well, what do you say it means? Um, it means that <laughs> certain things are going to happen. You know, in other words, I'm going to go into work Every day. Work is the most concrete area, the way to explain this, right? right. I'm going to go to work every day. And, and people are going to do exactly what I don't want them to do. And they're not going to do what I want them to do, regardless of what I say, right? So how do I find a way to be happy? How do I find – so because that's not my will. What these other people are doing every day is not my will. You know, what happened in the 2016 election is not my will. What happens on a daily basis on Twitter is not my will. But what I can reconcile it with is that maybe it's God's will. I don't know. But it's not mine. And I'm not going to get my way on everything. So how do I find a way to be happy if I, despite the fact that people are going out and doing all kinds of stuff that I don't want them to do? How when you're in a – you said your belief in God has fluctuated over the years. So then how would you explain to someone how you can work a third step in those phases where you don't believe in God? It's tough. Or does it go out the window? It could. It could, but when I've had some periods of doubt is when I've also been able to stay in touch with this idea um, again. And at that point, I really just grab, grab, just sort of grapple onto there's so much I don't know. Yeah. You know, not that I believe or I don't believe. It's just that I don't know. But I know that I alone don't have all the answers. I you feel know. like for me, when I'm in those moments of fluctuation yeah. and I'm in a no phase, mm-hmm. um, I like look for something concrete. And mm-hmm. what's concrete for me is that AA works wholeheartedly. Yeah. And 
when I see in the literature, people talk about AA can be your higher power. Mm -hmm. And that those are the moments I latch onto that. Well, right. I, I agree with that. And I have found that because in here's the thing. And you talk about that. They talk about the fellowship as a higher power. And I agree with that to a degree, right? Like, so I have actually sat in that room. I sit in rooms and I, and I feel closer to God, whatever mm -hmm. it is. And it, the God may just be them. It may just be these people who make me laugh and inspire me and annoy me, right? It may just be that. But there's something about when I sit in an alcohol, and I've been lucky enough now, I've gone to meetings in different places around the world now, not just the country, around the world. And any, no matter how far away I am from home, when I walk in and I just see the drunks and, you know, and I'm like, I just exhale. Yeah, you know? totally. It's that beautiful thing. And, and so I feel close to God, whatever it is. Whatever God is, I feel it in a room. And so I'm one of these people. I share a lot um, because to me, it's a form of prayer. You know, to me, it's like, okay, I'm giving this problem to God, right? I'm sharing about how I'm going through money stuff. You know, I'm 10 years sober, 15 years sober, almost 20 years sober, whatever it is. Maybe I'm having money problems, work problems, love problems, whatever it is, right? And today I'm doing pretty good on in most of those areas. But you know what I mean? But it's sort of like I share about it and I'm honest because I'm giving it to God, you know, yeah. in, in that moment. Um, and, and I will say going back to sponsorship, since we're talking about the third step, sponsoring other people the longer you sponsor other people the more easy it is to accept <laughs> god's will whatever it is because you're dealing with real people and you give them suggestions and they constantly take the, they, they do the contrary thing all right. the time right because they do what they want to do sure you know and and sometimes the contrary suggestion is they drink you know and sometimes they die My thanks again to Farrell M. for coming on the podcast. Any questions regarding sobriety, this podcast, or directly to me, comments, questions, keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com is the address. That's keepcomingbackpodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at KCB Podcast. Again, my name is Mike S. This has been Keep Coming Back, Real Stories of Sobriety and Recovery, and I'll see you next time.